Father, as we gather together this morning, um, thank you for those lyrics. Thank you for that reminder that what we just sang is, is my story, all of our story, that as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon our helpless state and you led us to the cross. Father, thank you for your grace and the way that you sought us out, the way that you revealed your son Jesus to us. Thank you for that great truth that Jeff shared with us, that we are co-heirs with your son Jesus, not for any reason other than your grace, your love, your sacrifice. Um, so Father, I pray this morning as we uh, turn to your word, as we open up your word, that Paul's words would be true for me, um, that what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. I pray that Christ would be honored and magnified and lifted high this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Hey, well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Um, Jeff, it's good to have you back. It's good to see you. Um, hey, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go ahead and open with me to Acts chapter 8. We're going to be concluding the story of Philip this morning. Acts chapter 8, and as Jeff kind of mentioned as you turn there, um, we're actually going to be taking a break from the book of Acts beginning next week as we kick off the season of Advent. I don't know if Advent has been uh, a part of your regular rhythms or routine as a family, but really encourage you to, to, to lean into Advent season this year. Advent is just Latin for coming. It's this anticipation of God's people that were, for, for thousands of years, were looking forward to the first coming of the Messiah, Right. But it's also a season where we look not just backwards at Jesus' coming in the manger, but we also look forward to his second coming, um, which is inevitable, which will happen, which will occur. So um, grab one of those devotions. Um, uh, I think it starts December 1st, so read those as a family. Pray through those. I pray that this season would be um, deeply ministering to you. Um, as we, as we kind of get started, I had a clip for you um, that due to technical difficulties, we're not going to be able to show, but um, it's arguably from, from what I would deem the most disturbing movie of all time, okay? I don't know what you're thinking about when you hear that, but I have four kids. You have to remember this, eight, six, four, and two. So I'm talking Disney Pixar, the most disturbing Disney movie ever um, put on screen, uh, WALL-E, right? Anybody ever seen WALL-E? I mean, disturbing, right? Okay, so if you don't know what WALL-E is, let me just explain it really quickly. It's a science fiction Disney Pixar film that... Um, happens in, in space. So Earth has been so trashed by our ability to mass consume that uh, it's no longer habitable. So the remaining humans, they evacuate to outer space. Um, but what's crazy, in the clip I wanted to show you was, um, in, in this clip, there all these people, due to the weightless environment of space, but also due to this mass consumerism, um, they're no longer physically using their bodies. They, they live in these lazy boys. It's disturbing, okay? They live in these lazy boys, and everything is, is brought to them by these bots, by these robots. They don't physically exert themselves at all, okay? And what I've learned is when you don't use your body, you medical people in the room know this, it leads to what we call atrophy, right? It leads to atrophy. So medical people, you don't need this definition, but I, I did, so I Googled it, and let me share it with you. Atrophy is the loss or the thinning of your muscle mass and your strength. It can occur to a variety of reasons, malnutrition, age, genetics, or just simply a lack of physical activity. In fact, as I researched atrophy, the leading cause of muscular atrophy is simply disuse. It's a sedentary lifestyle, okay? And in this movie, they're just cruising along in their lazy boys, and they're busy. There's actually a scene where there's two guys talking to one another on FaceTime, and they're sitting right next to each other in two lazy boys, okay? It's, it's a very disturbing movie. Um, you should not see it. I'm not endorsing it at all. But my kids like it. 
And that disuse, as they're laying in their lazy boys, it leads to atrophy. So this guy's in this lazy boy, and he falls over, and he just he cannot get up. He doesn't have the muscle mass or the strength to get up, and it's due to atrophy. But do you know what the remedy is for muscular atrophy? Yep. Anybody? Working out. Physical exercise. The remedy for muscular atrophy is physical exercise. Okay? So as I was preparing for this sermon this, this week, as I was reading through the story of Philip, I know that many of us do not suffer from, from physical atrophy. But I think the reality is we're all prone to spiritual atrophy. Right? We're all prone to mass consumerism. Even good things, right? We, we hurry along in our comfortable, proverbial lazy boys, and, and we run from Bible study to Bible story. We, we, we listen to podcast after podcast. We read Christian book after Christian book, and those, all that content without exercising that faith, right, leads to this spiritual atrophy. And what's even worse is often our, our consumerism is not Christian content. Right? We put our faith in Christ, we say that we're converted, we believe that we're believers, but yet we continue to gorge ourselves on um, the delicacies of the world. Right? It leads to spiritual atrophy, always consuming, yet never exercising our faith leads to spiritual atrophy. But do you want to know what the remedy to that is? Exercise. It's exercising our faith. And y'all, I don't want you to mishear me. What we have in our church, what you guys provide in our church is, is a hunger. There's a, there's a general hunger for the word of God that is, is really building this church, right? There's a hunger for podcasts and for Christian books. And y'all, I just want to say we need more of it. We need to fill our mind with things that will renew us and transform us. But I do not want us to be a church that's always consuming and not exercising. We have to remember, as Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for teaching, right? It's profitable for our growth. But we have to remember the end of that verse says it's also profitable for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. The inspiration of scripture isn't just for us to consume. It equips us. It trains us for every good work, for our exercise, okay? So that's what we're going to look at today. In the study of Philip, we're going to look at spiritual exercise, the remedy for our spiritual atrophy. So Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Let's begin there. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth? Verse 34. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I asked, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. 
But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns and came to, until he came to Caesarea. All right, a little bit of context. If you weren't here the last couple of weeks, we, in, we, we introduced this character, Philip. He had recently been um, nominated as, as what many would say the first deacon, someone who's serving the church um, by, by overseeing the daily distribution to these Hellenist widows. But as we saw two weeks ago in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, a great persecution arose against the church, right? Violence is coming against the church. And what does God do in the midst of that violence? Anybody? Y'all remember? He uses it. He uses it to push the gospel, to continue God's story into Judea and Samaria. And what we find is that Philip is one of the evangelists that moves into the area of Samaria, and he begins preaching the gospel. And y'all, people start responding. In fact, in Acts chapter 8, the, the first 10 verses, you see that people, multitudes, crowds are beginning to put their faith in Christ and follow Philip. And what Coleman preached on last week, we see it even, even getting the attention of some of this, this Simon the Magician guy, right, that he unpacked for us. So Philip is having a pretty effective ministry. And if, if it was modern day, I think what we would expect Philip to do at this point in his ministry is to launch a podcast, right? Author a book, Scoop up the domain name of philiptheevangelist.org, right? Start building his brand, maximizing his platform, really trying to expand his ministry. That's what we would expect to find. But what happens? In verse 26, even though his ministry is popular, multitudes are following, an angel of the Lord says to Philip, rise, go toward the south of the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza to a desert place. Really? Like, how many of you would be discouraged if that was the second command that you got? You'd be like, honestly? I would say, I mean, I'd probably be thinking, have I not been faithful? Have I not been faithful to these little things? I mean, I served the tables. I oversaw the daily distribution. Now I've got this thing going on in these, these leading cities of Samaria. I'd be pretty discouraged. But, but Philip wasn't. Verse 27, he just rose and he went. And what I want us to see as we dissect Philip's obedience, as we dissect the exercise of his faith, I want us to see that the way he exercises through personal evangelism, right? How many of you, your palms just started sweating immediately, right? I just lost half of you. When I talked about personal evangelism, you're like, no, 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 that's not for me, okay? I get it, but I don't want you to be there. I don't want us to be spiritually atrophic. I don't want us to be a people that just constantly consumes, but when we have opportunities to open our mouth, to exercise our faith, that we back away from it. Because, church, I just don't think there's anything that can reinvigorate a faith or a lot of fire in a faith like opening our mouth and communicating the good news of Christ. It'll do it for you. So I don't want you to check out. I want you to hang in there because far from leaving you feeling condemned, I want you to leave feeling equipped feeling empowered. And what we see in the obedience of Philip are four principles. You knew I was going there, okay? Here's the outline. Four principles of personal evangelism that can get us up, get us moving in the exercise of our faith. And they're going to be easy to remember because I'm going to follow an acronym called FISH, right? FISH, F-I-S-H. We are commanded, all of us, to be fishers of men and women. So I want to teach us and equip us on how to fish, and I hope that you've seen that this is all of our responsibility, right? We've been walking through the book of Acts tediously right? for the last four months. And what we have seen week after week after week is that we are called 
asked, commanded to be witnesses of Christ, to open our mouths, to use our lips and our lives to show people Jesus. Okay? So fish. And make sure I ensure credit, and to give credit, um, this acronym comes from a book called Spiritual Multiplication in the Real World um, by a man named Bob McNabb. Uh, as missionaries, we used it frequently, and I found it to be a really, really good acronym. So fish. Let's start with F. The remedy for our atrophy begins with find. Okay? Begins with finding. We have to find people that we can actually share the gospel with. Let's see how this happened with Philip. Verse 26. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise, go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Initially, what we see in the life of Philip is that Philip was divinely directed. Okay? That's sub-point A. Philip was divinely directed. We see at the beginning of Acts chapter 8 that he was divinely directed through circumstances. Right? His circumstances, the persecution that arose against the church, divinely directed Philip into Samaria to preach the gospel. Okay? So he is divinely directed by circumstances, but here we find him divinely directed by an angel. Have anybody seen or talked to an angel that you're aware of? Okay? I pray for it, but it's eluded me. I don't think that I've seen an angel. But what we know from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, is that angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. That's Hebrews. So this angel comes up to Philip and says, hey, go south. Head to a desert place. That Greek word desert is desolate place. It's a road south of Gaza where you would not expect to see any travelers. Okay? This is a desolate desert place. And what blows my mind about Philip's obedience is that he received no further instruction. Right? All he got was go. Go to the desert. And what we see in verse 27 is that Philip rose and went. Like Paul, he was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Like Abraham, he went out not knowing what was ahead of him. And what I want us to see in this find is, is that God is the initiator and the orchestrator of personal evangelism. Do you hear that? God is the initiator of personal evangelism. So often we get so scared and fearful of sharing our faith because we think it has to, to, to be dependent upon us. It's not. It, it starts with God. God is the initiator of personal evangelism. He divinely directed through circumstances. He divinely directed Philip through an angel. We see later in the text that he divinely directs Philip through the inner voice of the Spirit, telling him to go up and approach this man's chariot. But what I want us to see is that God's the author. He's the initiator of evangelism. But Philip was subjected or obedient to that direction. So for us this morning, are we? Are we obedient to divine direction? Do we view our circumstances, like Philip must have, as divinely orchestrated by God? Like, think about that. Do you believe that God is actually sovereign? That a man plans his steps, but the Lord, what is it? No, the man plans his, man's heart makes his plans, the Lord directs his steps. Forgive me. Do we believe that? Do we believe that God is sovereign over our circumstances? Did you move here for a new job? Do you believe that your relocation is God's divine direction in your life? The restaurant that you're going to eat at after church. Can you view that as God's divine direction in your life? The playground you take your kids to play at, the supermarkets we tend to shop at. Do we view our circumstances as being orchestrated by God's divine direction? So that's what I want us to see. God is the initiator. He gives the direction. But secondly, notice where it led Philip. It led to a divine appointment. It led to a divine appointment. Philip rose and went, verse 27. And who did he meet there? There was an Ethiopian 
a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Y'all, put yourself in the narrative. Like, think about how uncanny this would have been. Out there in a desolate place where hardly any travelers are known to be, you find somebody. But not just anybody, the finance minister of the kingdom of Ethiopia. Right? If, if, this is a 500-mile journey one way for this guy. Because what, what this kingdom is, is not modern-day Ethiopia. It's southern Egypt stretching all the way um, to Khartoum of Sudan in modern times. Okay, 500-mile journey one way. And on that journey, at that particular time, at that particular place, Philip and this man intersect. Is that a coincidence? No, this is a divine appointment. It's a divine appointment that is orchestrated by nothing other than the extravagant love of God. Really think about this. The extravagant love of God led these two to intersect. This is a love, as we see in Luke 15, that that leaves the 99 to go after the one. This is a love that would light a lamp and sweep the house and search diligently for one lost coin. This is a love, as we see in the prodigal father, that has compassion and runs and embraces and kisses his long lost son. The extravagant love of God leads to these divine appointments. And y'all, this is a love that fulfills all of its promises. Because as I was studying this week, I realized in Psalm 68, 31, we read this promise in the Psalms. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush. Cush is, is the kingdom of Ethiopia. When we read about Cush in the Old Testament, it's the kingdom where this man came from. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. Even the Old Testament was foretelling that someone from Cush would stretch out their hands to worship God. Only the love of God would orchestrate such a divine appointment. And he does it all the time. Church, we are seeking spiritual exercise through personal evangelism, but we have to get out there to find. But I don't want you to leave thinking it is all dependent upon you. I want you to leave believing and trusting that you can never out-seek God. He is the ultimate finder. He's constantly given divine direction, leading to divine appointments, all driven by his extravagant love for you and for those that you're going to meet. Even such a one as an Ethiopian eunuch. Right, a eunuch is, is someone who is set apart ancient times for royal service. Someone who had been castrated in an attempt to ensure that that person, as he serves the royal kingdom, could never usurp the throne because they could never establish their own dynasty through their own lineage. Even someone like that, God would go out of his way for to set up this divine appointment. That's extravagant love. And just think about it for a second. Is that not your story? Like, is that not your story? Is that, is that not all of our stories? I was invited to a church camp right after I graduated from high school. Full disclosure, was way more interested in the rec events and the girls that were attending than the God that was there being worshipped, okay? July 3rd, 2007, God sought me out. Sought me out. And the man that led me through the gospel presentation to make sure I understood what was going on in my heart at that time happened to be living in the city of Athens, Georgia, where I would be moving two days later. That man discipled me for 10 years. Married Annie and I. Coincidence? No, y'all, that's a divine appointment. That's what God does in his extravagant love. I heard a story this week of a family in our church who went to lunch just after church last Sunday. As they sat there, the waitress noticed her, her volunteer sticker because she was serving in our kids' ministry and asked her what church she had been attending because she just moved into town and had been praying for a church but didn't know where to go. Coincidence? No, y'all, this is a divine appointment. 
There's a story in our church of a dear brother who saw some of us, but before we even launched, we were trying to do these community picnics. If you remember those at Fort McAllister, we scheduled them every day it rained, okay? It was amazing, okay? So we're out there in the rain trying to get to know one another, and, and, and a man out there saw some of our people and, and wanted to know what was going on, went up and talked to one of the guys that was with us. That guy in our church befriended him, kept up with him. He attends our church every Sunday. Coincidence? No, it's a divine appointment. And here's what I want us to say about about this fine. Living in the middle of divine appointments, it will reinvigorate your faith. Living in divine appointments will get you up and moving. It'll get some spiritual exercise. We'll overcome that atrophy. So we have to find. That's the first letter in our acronym. He gives divine directives that lead to divine appointments that we may find. Okay. Second point in our, in our acronym is I. It's interest. Interest. What Philip needs to do here is to discern the interest, here again, that God had already placed in that Ethiopian eunuch. God is the creator and the initiator of spiritual hunger and interest in the hearts of people. Philip's responsibility was just to discern it. Here's what I want you to really take away as we try to be people who fish, who try to be people who exercise our faith. God is always at work. Always. God is always working. Jesus said, my father is always working. That's John 5. And what is his work? What's the work of the father? John 6. Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom you have sent. Then he goes on to say, God is always working to draw people to himself. That's God's work. He is always working. And he does it by creating spiritual interest in the lives of his people. Our job is just to discern it. Let's look at how this happened with the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip rose, he went, and out there he met this Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to what? To worship. That's fascinating. 500 miles to worship. But not only was he interested to the point where he would make a trip like that, as he was returning, seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah, and the Spirit said to him, go over and join him. Then he hops into the chariot and begins to explain to him the scriptures. Okay, so notice the interest in this Ethiopian eunuch. Although residing 500 miles away, he came to Jerusalem to worship. Why? I can promise you there were local deities and local gods in the kingdom of Ethiopia, but apparently they were just unsatisfying. So it leads him to take this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, but the ache in his life led to something more. His awareness that something inside of him was missing, that I'm missing something, led him not just to pilgrim 500 miles, but to begin reading a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He makes that dry, hot, month-long journey. Month-long journey. This is a chariot, you know, pulled by oxen. But here's, what, here's where it really gets interesting, and hear this. He gets to Jerusalem only to learn that, that to his dismay, in his case, as a eunuch, full conversion... Full membership into the congregation of Israel was prevented him. He was prevented from converting. He's prevented from being a proselyte. Why? Deuteronomy 23.1. It forbids eunuchs from approaching the gates of the Lord. He could visit the temple after his 500-mile journey, but he could never enter it. Think about the interest there. Think about the hunger there. Think about the dismay that he would have felt. So what does he do? He, he settles for purchasing a, a scroll of Isaiah in the temple gift shop. You know? Takes it as a souvenir. Begins to read it on his way home. 
His interest led to him having the humility to look at Philip and say, how can I understand this unless somebody guides me? Again, I just want to point out, y'all, this is God's work. God is at work. God is creating interest. He's, he's peaking curiosity that makes someone's faith insatiable. They have to know. They have to know more about this. This is what, God's, this is what God does. He's always working. Is this not your story? Like, think about it. Think about your conversion. Is this not the story that you had? Now, you know, of course, minus the oxen and the chariot and the scrolls and all that stuff. Is this not your story? Maybe you'd say, man, something just began to happen to me. I can't really put a finger on it. Oh, my friend, he began to change, and I began to notice that change in him, and something in me had some questions about that. I don't know why. I just found myself going to church. And instead of sleeping through it, I'm not calling out any names, okay? We're good. Instead of sleeping through it, I found myself listening actually jotting some notes, actually having some questions that were stated. I saw my neighbors, right? I hear this all the time. I saw my neighbors, saw how they parented their kids, saw how they lived their life. It was just different. I had some questions about that, learned that they were Christians. Heard a story this week. I was struggling in life. I just picked up the Bible, began to read, and it's like the words began to jump off the page. It's what God does. He creates interest in his people. Some of you are there right now. Some of you, just like this Ethiopian eunuch, you're interested enough to come to church. I hope you didn't travel 500 miles. If that's you, maybe you're here with family, okay? But if that's you, I'll help you find a church closer to home. But some of you are here, interested enough to hear what would be said from God's word. Maybe you're even curious enough to start asking some questions about what you're hearing, about what you're reading. Church, I just want to say, if that's you, God loves you. God loves you. And would set this up through his extravagant love, and he's creating all this interest in you. He's bringing you here to this particular place at this particular time and creating this interest so that you might have life. And life abundantly is what Jesus said. But if you're like Philip, right, and you want to start spiritually exercising and begin to fish, we just have to discern the interest. Obey that divine directive. Follow that divine appointment. Discern that interest. Okay. But ultimately, that's not enough. We're good at meeting people. We're good at finding people. Even maybe even some asking some questions to discern some interest. But at some point, we have to move to our S. Share. We have to share. Okay. Find interest. Share. Look with me um, at verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth. Right? This is kind of a deal breaker for us. Be honest. It is for me. This is where my palms start to sweat, and I just start to shut down a little bit. I get fearful. It's like, what do I say? What if I say the wrong thing? What if they ask a question and I don't know the answer to that question? Once again, let me call your attention to how God had gone before Philip. You're not alone. This is not wholly dependent on you. Your sharing is just joining God in the work that he is already doing. Out of all the Old Testament scriptures that this man could have been reading on his chariot, he's reading Isaiah 53. Right? This could have been Song of Solomon. This could have been Leviticus. He's reading Isaiah 53. There's no Christ-centered scripture in the Old Testament like Isaiah 53. So what we see is Philip just says, okay, where do I, where do I start? Okay, I'm just going to begin with the scripture that he's reading. Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 8, he begins to tell him that the sheep that was led to slaughter, that's actually Jesus who was crucified. He said, you probably heard about him in Jerusalem. It's kind of a big deal. It's getting around a little bit. Like the lamb that was silent before its shear, that was Jesus who stood silently before his accusers. The justice that was denied him, that was all the false accusations of blasphemy against him. He was sinless, yet died the death of a criminal on a cross. He just begins with the scripture that God had him reading, but he doesn't stop there. 
Right? Philip opened his mouth, beginning with the scripture, and began to tell him the good news about Jesus. If you read that scripture, you think, man, this guy's life was taken away from the earth. That's bad news, isn't it? And Philip goes, no, no, no. That's not bad news. Go up a couple verses. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. I'm going to read it for you. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the sins of us all. That's good news. That's the good news of Jesus, that the love of God sent Jesus to the cross, that he died because of our sins, our iniquities, pierced for our transgressions. But it was his death that ultimately led to our peace with God. Right? The, the claim of Christianity is that he died the death that you and I deserve so that we can live through faith in him for the life that we don't deserve. Right? That's the good news of Jesus. In this eunuch, I can only imagine this Ethiopian man, just like the crowds in Acts chapter 2 after Peter preached, I can only imagine him getting pretty excited and saying, what must I do? Right? What must I do? What a question. So what does Philip do? I'm sure he just continues. Hey, listen, repent, believe, be baptized. We've seen it all throughout the book of Acts. But also believe he had to tell him, listen, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to earn this. The sacrifice of Christ for you was a gift. The claim of the gospel, y'all, hear this. We need to hear this over and over. The claim of the gospel is not do your very best, and then maybe God will accept you one day. The claim of the gospel is that at your very worst, he sent his very best so that your, your acceptance is purchased in Christ. Do you hear that? You don't have to clean yourself up to be accepted by Christ. He died for you. That purchases your acceptance. So that Ethiopian man, hey, you don't have to do, you just have to turn. Turn from the old way of living and put your faith in Christ. And then you can symbolize that faith in Christ with baptism, right? And that's going to lead to our last point here. Philip, after finding, after discerning interest, after sharing, we lead to our age. He helps. He helps him. How does, how does he do that? Verse 36. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's some water. What prevents me from being baptized? So how's, how's he helping? Look at that question he asked. What, what prevents me? Now, why would this question need some help? Right? Remember, where, where did he just come from? Jerusalem. He had just traveled 500 miles to Jerusalem, thinking that maybe he'd find the answers to the longing in his souls, only to get there that he, to, to learn he was prevented by law from entering into the temple or the proverbial presence of God. He was told, you're unworthy to be accepted, that because of your physical blemishes, you cannot enter. So Philip helps him, helps him by once again reminding him that his acceptance in Jesus is found because of Christ. Not because of us, not because of your own self, not because his own physical body, but in the finished work of Jesus. Y'all, in my experience, so many, just like this Ethiopian man at this point, they, they turn back. They turn back at this juncture. They're interested, but they feel that there's something preventing them. For often, I, it could be like this, man, it's just the shame of their past. Shame keeps us from living in the presence of God. Maybe it's a lie we believe about God, a lie we believe about ourselves, fear of what others may think about us. For many of our men, 
It's pride. We don't want to surrender to this Lord. We want to be Lord. Y'all, there's a, various, there, there's a number of various reasons that prevent us from conversion. What, what is it for you? What, what was it for you? What do you need help with in order to overcome these preve- uh, preventions? Is it the shame of your sins? That God could never simply accept you if, you if he knew, if he really knew how bad you were. Let me help you by reminding you once again of the gospel. That your acceptance is not based on you. It's based on Christ. Is it a past hurt, right, from so-called Christians? How many people do you know who have thrown the baby out with the bathwater, right? Turned their back on Christ because of some hurt of some Christians. You need help. Let me remind you of his sinlessness, even in the face of our sinfulness, our collective hypocrisy. Is it that pride? You've lived so long acting like you're a Christian, pretending like you've got it all figured out, and you worry, what will others think if I publicly convert by stepping into the water of baptism? What will others think about me? Let me help you by reminding you that the, of the far exceeding value in the approval of God compared to the approval of man. Now, we run ourselves ragged living for the approval of man. It is so much freer and more valuable to live in the approval of God. We all need help. Right? There, there are always things, there are always questions, and I have to remind us, there are also principalities and powers that want to blind us from putting our faith in the light of the gospel. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 4. But God sends Phillips. God sends these divine appointments that can help us overcome those preventions. So, so let me conclude for us. Fish. Philip finds, Philip discerns interest, Philip shares, and Philip's health. And let's, let's see how it concludes, because it's kind of a wild ending. He commands the chariot to stop. They, they both get into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and, and Philip baptizes him. Verse 39, And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more, went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns, and he came to Caesarea. That is a wild conclusion. Okay, We, if, we weren't here last week. We were in northwest Georgia. My grandfather had passed away, and I prayed. I prayed for the teleportation. Of Philip. As I was preparing for this, I was like, this would be amazing. If we didn't have to get on I-16, right, with our four kids, it would be a great gift. Never happened. But it happened to Philip, okay? When he came up out of the water, the Spirit carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. I could not help but to think, I don't think the eunuch cared. I don't think the eunuch cared that he saw him no more, because he just went on rejoicing. He must have, he, he might have lost Philip, but he found Christ. And we don't know what happened to this Ethiopian eunuch. We read in church history from 160 AD, so about 100 years after this, many believe this Ethiopian man became the first missionary to the kingdom of Ethiopia. But we don't know that for certain. But what we do know for certain from Philip is that whether he was in the city of Samaria, in the desert place, or even all the way up in Azotus, he just kept preaching the gospel. He just kept fishing. That's what he was doing. So here's where I want to challenge you this morning, okay? For the Phillips in the room, for, for the Christians in the room, I don't want us to be the spiritual version of what Wally depicts, right? I don't want us to be a church that's just always consuming, yet never spiritually exercising. And there's other ways to spiritually exercise, right? There are other disciplines in the Christian faith. Maybe we'll teach a class on spiritual formation and discipline one day, but I can promise you that nothing can invigorate your faith like putting into practice personal evangelism. It'll do it. So here's what I'm going to call you to. I want you to fish. For the Christians in the room, I want you to fish. We talked about Advent. Next week, next Sunday, is the first Sunday of Advent. That'll lead all the way up to Christmas Eve, because we'll be having a Christmas Eve service. Details are coming um, soon. 
from now to then, I'd encourage you to fish. Because what happens in this season is usually people who are far from Christ experience a lot of grief, but also a lot of renewed interest in the gospel. This is a season that God orchestrates that leads to interest. Would you be willing to fish? Would you be willing to share the good news, help answer people's questions? And I'm here for you. I want to pray for you. I want to hear about it. I want to equip you. I'd love to hear your stories of how you're fishing. All right. For the non-Christians in the room, I just can't help but to call you to just don't let whatever it is preventing you from the love of God. I don't know what it is, but don't let it keep you from the great grace that's found in the gospel. I believe you're here sovereignly because of his extravagant love. So, as the eunuch did, repent, believe, and be baptized. Okay, that's my encouragement. So I think it's a, a pretty fitting response for us to actually lead us into a time of communion. Okay, we're going to take communion. So if you're serving communion, I'd encourage you to go ahead and, and stand up, go find your places, and, and you guys can go ahead and start passing that out. But I believe it's a really good fitting in for us because um, it is a continuation of our worship, but it's also a visible, visible display of the gospel that, that we just preached, right? That what we have in these elements is the, the bread, which Jesus says is like my body. It's like my body that was broken for you, right? And in this element of the juice, we have this representation of the blood of Christ that was shed for you. Again, his extravagant love. And as we pass these elements, it's a visible representation of what we just heard in the gospel. So we're going to take communion, and you guys can go ahead and start handing that out. Communion is a sacrament of the church. It's instituted by Jesus where he commanded us to regularly partake it and do it in remembrance of him. I want to remind us that the meal of communion is for the believer, for those who by faith acknowledge what these symbols have meant for you personally. So if you're not a Christian, I just kindly ask you to let these elements pass you by. But as the elements come around and, and as you know, Colby's going to play for us, I want us to, to hold these in remembrance of Christ. Just take a minute, slow down, I'll stop talking, that you just kind of get quiet and remember Jesus. Maybe remember or think on, meditate on, on what's preventing you, right, from putting your faith in Jesus. So Colby's going to play. I'm going to give us some time just to reflect and remember, and I'll come up and lead us through the taking of communion. Um, and I do want to remind you, if anybody needs uh, gluten-free bread, we do have that. You can just raise your hand, one of our team will come to you. All right, Colby.
I'm going to read for us from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 23, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Go ahead and take the bread. In the same way, he also took the cup, and after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He concludes by saying, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So why don't you go ahead and stand with me? Let me pray for us, and then we'll conclude our day with another moment of worship. Father, thank you for the privilege that we had just then, in that moment, to join you in personal evangelism, to proclaim the life of Christ, to proclaim the death of Christ through the elements of this bread and this juice. Lord, we're honored to join you in the work of redemption. I pray that we would grow in your grace and your mercy and your patience. We'd grow in our desire to make ourselves fools for the sake of the gospel, to open up our mouths and not be worried about the approval of man, but to be so on fire for the love of God that we'd be willing to share that with others. Thank you for all of those that you've put in our lives that have led us to that, that decision. Thank you for all the Phillips that you've divinely directed and divinely appointed, and may we be that in the lives of others in this community and around this community. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.